And let's take our scriptures out. This morning we're going to continue working our way through what is considered by many to be the high point of the New Testament, the 8th chapter of Romans. So let's turn there together to Romans chapter 8. We're going to read verses 18 through 30 this morning. So let's read those together. Follow along as I read this word, which is God's word to us, inspired, breathed out by him, given to us through the words of the Apostle Paul. Romans 8, beginning in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we, eager, as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray for your blessing upon this time. We ask that uh, we would be helped immensely uh, by your word as it goes forth today. We pray that you would help us to Uh, Give attention as your word is preached, Lord, and we ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit, illumine our hearts that we may understand what you have for us today. Bless he who preaches, bless we who hear, and in all things would you receive glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. As we get started this morning, I want to remind you of a portion of Romans 8 that we didn't read this morning, primarily that first verse, as we recall that Paul started the chapter by saying, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And as we've been going through chapter 8, we've been making many references back to that first verse. It is a great statement of fact a great statement of a great truth that no Christian can hear too often, can, can delve into too deeply, can love too intensely, or can give thanks to God for too much. It is an amazing statement 
It is really the gospel in 13 words in this version that we're reading. And that statement at the beginning of the chapter stands, it stands at the head of the chapter and it stands as the great pronouncement of the chapter. The rest of the chapter, as we've seen before, is written by Paul to support that statement, to lay out some of the subordinate truths that show what it means, uh, to drive home the blessedness of these words. That there is no condemnation for us. That everything, the main thing that separated us from God, the condemnation that was due to each and every one of us because of our fallenness, because of our sin, that has all been removed through Christ. And that we are right before God through Him. That there is no condemnation. There's no condemnation now. Christian, you are not condemned now. And you will not be condemned in the future. There's the assurance that the condemnation is gone completely. And Paul has been through the the subsequent verses working that out. For example, he says, we know that there's no condemnation because we have been delivered from the law through the life and the death of Jesus Christ. And that therefore all the requirements of the law have been met in you as if you had met them yourselves. We know that also as the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit has regenerated us and is sanctifying us as He dwells in us, we know by that that our salvation, we can see that it has already begun and that we have been brought into the realm of the Spirit. We have been brought into the, the... the house of the Spirit, as, as it were. And therefore, we walk according to the Spirit as Christians. We live according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh. We live according to the things of the Spirit. We know also that there is no condemnation for us because we have the Spirit, not just out there influencing things, helping us, but we have the Spirit of God dwelling in us. And that therefore we have it confirmed by God's word here in Romans 8. And assured that we are children of God. And God will not ever condemn his children. Another thing that we've seen here that supports uh, or that shows how Paul is supporting that initial statement is that as we are confirmed, as we are assured to be sons of God, that we are also, Paul has taught us here, heirs of God. We have an inheritance. We have that which comes only to the sons. We are joint heirs with Jesus Christ, sharing in His inheritance. And that God has guaranteed that to us by giving to us a down payment of that glorious inheritance by giving to us the Holy Spirit who dwells in us and works in us hope, another thing that we've seen. And that it is through Him that we are able to cry out to God, not just in creature-to-creator terms, but in children-to-father terms. We are able to cry out, Abba, Father, through the Spirit. And so confident Can we be in all of this, so sure is all of this, that that even the multitude of sufferings that we face, 
All of the, the sufferings of this life fade literally into insignificance in comparison, Paul says, to the glory that is to be ours because our condemnation has been replaced by adoption and sonship. Our status has been made that of heirs of God. And as Paul has been laying all of this out for us, we have seen, as promised at the beginning of this chapter, the prominence of the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, he, as God, as the third person of the Trinity, has always been working in every aspect of our salvation. But here, we've seen that he's really been front and center in much of Paul's discussion in chapter 8. And that's going to continue this morning in a really remarkable way as we learn about the help of the Holy Spirit this morning. And we're just going to be looking at two verses today, verses 26 and 27, and at three things concerning that help. We're going to look at the fact that the Spirit helps. And then we will look at why the Spirit helps and how the Spirit helps. But first we need to determine that the Spirit helps us. And that is Paul's first uh, task here as he comes to verses 26 and 27. Look at verse 26. He begins it by saying, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Stop there. When he says likewise... Another one of those words that connects what we're looking at with what goes before. And we see how really, especially here in chapter 8, but we've seen it all the way through the book of Romans, what a clear and logical argument Paul lays out in this book, this majestic book of Romans. And he's very methodical and logical, and he brings conclusions from what he says and conclusions from the conclusions as he moves on. And here he says likewise. And when he says likewise, he's connecting this with other ways that the Spirit helps us, which we've seen throughout the chapter. The Spirit sets the parameters for the Christian life into which he brings us. Both he and what Paul calls the things of the Spirit, which means the things that are agreeable to him and are produced by him. Those things are the very environment of the Christian life. He's talked about the fact that the Spirit indwells every believer. He helps in that way, certainly. Something that the New Testament makes very clear in several places, in the Gospels and in the Epistles. Jesus said regarding the Spirit that he dwells with you and will be in you. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, then, Paul says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and God's Spirit dwells in you? In the confusion also, I think, of our, of our day concerning the work of the Spirit, let me just be clear that Scripture is clear that the Holy Spirit uh, has dwelt and does dwell in every believer. Every believer that has ever walked this earth has had the Spirit indwelling him. Or her. And how do we know that? Well, Paul says it right here in verse 9 of chapter 8. He says it by way of negation. He says, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. Having the Spirit of Christ, having the Spirit in you, is a 
sine qua non of salvation. It is something without which you cannot have salvation. Now, we understand, of course, that the nature of the indwelling and the nature of the working of the Spirit uh, differs from the time before Christ to the time after His resurrection and ascension and the, the events on the day of Pentecost and so forth. But the fact that this Holy Spirit indwells every believer has always remained a constant. We've also seen that the Spirit is spoken of in verse 11 as the means by which or through which God will raise us from the dead on the last day. He says that the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. The Holy Spirit also works and helps us by strengthening our hope. As he indwells us, not only as Jesus said, as another comforter who comes, but also we learned what last week, and we mentioned it this morning, as the down payment of that inheritance, as the first fruit of that inheritance that awaits us fully upon the return of the Lord. And that as such, he, the Holy Spirit, is an indicator of that full reception of that inheritance. He is a provider of the hope that encourages us as it points us towards the glory that awaits us, even as we groan inwardly as we wait for that day. The Spirit also helps us in that He provides the means by which, in fact, He is the means by which we put to death the deeds of the flesh. As He leads us, verses 13 and 14 say, in His way. We are led by the Spirit. He is also, we saw more recently, the adoption, or the agent, and the proof of our adoption. Our adoption by God. Uh, He who is called here in verse 15, the Spirit of adoption, keeps us from fear in the face of the struggles of the Christian life. And in fact, He Himself works in our hearts and helps us by bearing witness with our spirit that we indeed, in fact, are children of God. So all of those ways that Paul's already said the Spirit helps, and so as he comes here to verse 18 this morning, I'm sorry, verse 26 this morning, He now picks up that thought and says, likewise, just like all of that, in the same way as all of that, just as the Spirit is working to help us in all of those ways, likewise, Paul says, the Spirit helps in our weakness. He comes alongside us to help us. He's called in the Gospels the paraclete, a word that means one who is called alongside to help. And Paul says here, he helps. He helps us. In our weakness. What a comforting promise that is, Christian. Comforting because, at least for me, of all the adjectives that I would pick to apply to my life as a Christian, and I suspect the same for you this morning, weak is right up there at the top. If we're honest, we are weak people. We are weak Christians. We don't like that. We want to not be weak, but if we're honest about ourselves, we are weak 
weak in body, we're weak in mind, we're weak in spirit, we're weak in faith, we're weak in conviction and in love, we're weak in compassion, we're weak in humility, we're weak in all of the the graces of believers, we're weak in all the fruits of the Spirit. Not, Not due to any weakness in any of those things, but the weakness is ours. Paul even mentioned back in verse 3 regarding the law and what God has done in the law. He says, God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. The weakness is in us. We must own that. We must accept that. Paul says elsewhere that he even says, I am content with weaknesses. Even though there are a multitude of manifestations of our weakness, and we can say we're weak in all of those ways, Paul, notice the word here for weakness is singular. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. It's it's all taken together here. It is in our inadequacy in general, Paul says, that the Spirit helps. In our weak state as Christians, as we live on this side of eternity. Because remember, we will not always be weak. There will be a time when all of that weakness will be removed. It will all be purged away. When all that is weak will be made strong in the new earth. It is for that we wait. It is for that, Paul said earlier, that we groan inwardly. But for now, while we are here, we are weak. Our lives, our Christian lives are marked by weakness. But Paul writes that God is gracious, that God is good because we receive help in our weakness. That's one of the things to take away this morning, that God gives us help in our weakness. Specifically, he says here, likewise, the Spirit helps in our weakness. The Holy Spirit is is helping here. Our weakness is an opportunity for God, the Holy Spirit, to display His strength to us and for us and in us. As Paul says, or rather as God says to Paul over in 2 Corinthians 12.9, God said to Paul, my power is made perfect in weakness. To which Paul then responded, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest in me. Our weakness is an opportunity for God to help. And Paul here says this morning, he helps. Just as he helps in these other ways that we've seen in chapter 8, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. And as Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, he has a specific weakness in mind that he wants to talk about, that he focuses on. And it's not one that we think about very often. And it has to do with our weakness in regard to prayer. And that leads us to our second focus this morning, and that is why the Spirit helps. We've seen that He helps. Paul says it right there. But why do we need the Spirit's help particularly? He helps us, I say, in regard to our prayer. 
And I think that in addition to us all agreeing that we are weak Christians, I think we would all agree that we all need help in our prayer. And it's without doubt that the Holy Spirit does help. He helps us in every aspect of our prayer as He, dwelling in us, works in us to sanctify us, to conform us into the image of Christ. He works in all aspects of our prayer. It's interesting, though, what it is specifically that that the Holy Spirit is said to help us with, as Paul mentions it here. What is it about our prayer that we need help with that Paul mentions that the Spirit gives us help with? It is not, first of all, concerning whether we pray or whether or not we pray. We, We need help there, certainly. We know we are to pray. I've asked before, what do you call a Christian who doesn't pray? And the answer is a non-Christian. Prayer is the air that we breathe as Christians. Both by command and by desire, prayer is something that every Christian does all the time. In fact, we're commanded to do that, aren't we? Over in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, Paul said, pray without ceasing. Jesus himself said that we ought always to pray in Luke 18.1. And that's important. And though the Spirit certainly helps us in, in this regard, that is not Paul's focus here. It's also not about how we pray. What is the, the attitude of prayer? That's not the topic here. Oh, we need help in that, don't we? How are we to pray? Well, we're to pray with reverence. We're to pray with recognition of our need. We're to pray with humility. We're to pray with repentance. We're to pray with trust in God as we come to our Father who is in heaven. We are to pray with confidence, aren't we? Whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours, Mark eleven twenty four says. And again, all of that's true. All of that's biblical. All of that's important. And certainly the Holy Spirit helps us with those things as well. But that is not what Paul is talking about. He's also not talking about sort of the general content of our prayer. We've all heard the, the very helpful outline of, of, of prayer, the outline with the, the acronym ATS, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. All that's important. That is biblical. That is helpful. But it's not that. So Paul's concern isn't that we, we don't pray or that we don't pray often enough or that we, we don't pray sincerely enough, but the help that the Spirit gives, the, the weakness in prayer that He comes alongside of us to help us with here and helps us to overcome is that, look at verse 26, that the Spirit helps us in our weakness for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. Now, I know people are using uh, various translations. There are a couple of English translations that translate this, that we do not know how to pray as we ought. But the word in the original isn't usually translated that way, and there's another word that would be better if Paul meant to say how. 
And there's a way you can read it to, when you're talking about how we should pray of, of particularly what we should be praying for. And that's, that's the best translation here is we do not know what to pray for as we ought. We don't know. He says as we ought. And again, he's not saying there that we ought to pray, though that's true. And Paul says it in other places. But he is saying that we don't know what to pray for in any specific situation. We don't know what to pray for as is necessary in the situation or as is needful in the situation. In any given point in our lives, in any given situation in our lives, how should we pray, that is, for what should we ask? Paul is saying that is the thing that we have trouble with and it is that that the Spirit helps us with. Now even there, there are some things that we know we know that we are to pray according to God's will. And we know, or at least we should know, or must seek to know, what God's will is in, in the sense of His revealed will, what He has given to us in His Word. It's given to us in the Scripture. We pray in accordance with that, right? We, we know that we should never pray for something that is contrary to God's Word, But beyond that, we're often unsure of what to pray for. Have you experienced that? I know you have. Have you ever said or ever thought, I'm not sure what to pray for in this case? I'm not sure how, and in that way you're saying, I don't know what I should be praying for. And that's exactly what Paul is talking about here. We know God hears when we pray according to His will. But when we don't know what God's will is, we don't know how to pray. We don't know what to pray for. When we hear of a loved one in, in dire straits, physically or spiritually, what should we ask God to do? I've talked about the situation with Cindy's sister who is in a horrible car accident and yet is not a Christian. What should be the focus of my prayer for her? When we pray for our government, what should we pray? I know there are some who are ready to whip out the imprecatory prayers, uh, but what should we pray for? When we're dealing with any of our multitude of weaknesses, what is our prayer to be? We try, I think, I hope, we should try to pray properly, to pray for what we should pray for. But our weakness, going back to the beginning of verse 26, our weakness often causes us to miss it, to miss the mark on that. Or to doubt our prayers or to doubt God in our prayers because we are not sure if they are the right prayers to pray. Paul even experienced that. Um, you can turn over uh, to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We get a first-hand example of this from the Apostle Paul. In the beginning of the chapter, 
of chapter 12 there in 2 Corinthians, uh, Paul is talking about how he was, he was granted a singular honor and was shown heaven. Though so he says he doesn't know all of the details, whether it was in the body or out of the body or any of that. But he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 in verses 7 through 10, he says this, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. He says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content. We read this earlier. I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul says, I prayed three times. Specifically, I I had a particular thing that I prayed for. He says, I prayed that God would take this away. That it should leave me, he says. But God's will was not that. That was not the right prayer. God's will was to leave it so that his grace and his power could be displayed in other ways. So Paul wasn't perfect in regard to this. That could be, by the way, why he says at the beginning of the verse that the Spirit helps us in our weakness, including himself. He'd experienced it too. We know what we ought to pray, or that we ought to pray. We know what our attitude should be. We know we should pray according to God's will. But what to pray for in our specific situation, what is best, what is appropriate, what is needful, what is necessary, and that's the meaning of the word in the original that we translate as we ought. It means according to necessity, or literally says. That, Paul says, we don't know because of our weakness. And therefore, the good news is that therefore, that is what the Spirit helps us with. And that is why He helps us. But let's look then, thirdly, at how the Spirit helps. And He does it in a most wonderful way. In the second half there, verse 26, he says, But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. That is a really remarkable statement, that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. What does it mean to intercede? It means to make an appeal on behalf of someone else, particularly to someone who is in um, difficulty or in trouble and generally to an authority of some kind. And that is what the Holy Spirit does for us, Christian. Of course, the one with whom or to whom he intercedes is the Father. Paul even emphasizes that it is the Holy Spirit here who does the interceding and no one else. He wants us to get this. That's why he says it is the Spirit himself. Not just it's the Spirit, but it's the Spirit himself, the very Spirit of God, the one who indwells us, the one that helps us, the one who is the Spirit of adoption, the one who has done all of these things that I've talked about already in this chapter. It is he who comes and helps us by interceding on our behalf when we don't know what to pray. That is how he helps us. 
in our weakness regarding not knowing. Because, you see, beloved, He does know what we need. He does know what we should pray for. He does know what we need. He does know what is best for us. He does know when it is best for us. He knows when what we think is best is not really best. And because He is God, He has the compassion of God and the desire for our good, as we'll look at next week, in all of that. So He intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. That's how he does it. With groanings too deep for words, Paul describes it. Now, that's an interesting phrase, and there are differences of opinion regarding exactly what that means. Um, By the way, this is the only place in the New Testament, or in Scripture at all, where the Holy Spirit is said to intercede for us. The question that comes up in this is, is who is doing the groaning? Is it the Christian or is it the Spirit? Some say that these, the groanings being spoken of here are Holy Spirit prompted and assisted utterances of the Christian and so the intercession comes about through those groanings. So there's really the Christian doing the interceding, prompted by the Spirit, helped by the Spirit. There are others that say that the intercession is done solely by the Holy Spirit on the believer's behalf. There's also another view of this that's taken by some, many in the the charismatic world, that see here an example uh, or support for praying in tongues or speaking in tongues. Um, but even, e- even if for the sake of argument we grant that the gift of speaking in tongues is, is continuing and is as they characterize it, there are still problems with that view. The word that's translated here, too deep for words, literally means wordless or unspoken and speaking in tongues or praying in tongues is audible so it doesn't really fit but more problematic is that speaking in tongues is understood even in charismatic circles as something that only some Christians do but what is presented here is clearly being presented as the help of the Holy Spirit to all believers so that leaves us with the two And I think that the evidence is substantially stronger for the second view. That this is, as the ESV translates it here clearly, uh, that is the Spirit interceding for us on His own, without words. Since we often, because of our weakness, do not know for what we should pray, the Spirit helps us by stepping in and interceding for us with the Father. As I mentioned, this is the only place that talks about the Holy Spirit interceding, so we don't really have any parallel passages that can can help us in any way. Now, we do read, of course, in a couple of places, one of which is right here in Romans 8, 
of the fact that Jesus intercedes for us. In fact, verse 34 is that verse. He says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So Romans 8, in fact, is going to talk about that. Over in Hebrews chapter 7.25, the author there says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, speaking of Christ here, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So Jesus does, and the Spirit does. By the way, do you see how beautifully and completely God has us covered in this, in our weakness in regard to prayer. In Hebrews 7.25, and we could also mention 1 John 2.1, and here in Romans 8.34, we learn that Jesus intercedes for us from the right hand of the Father, from heaven, as part of His ongoing ministry to His people. And here now, we see that the Holy Spirit intercedes for God's people from, well, from within them within us. How great, people of God, is God's love for you. That the comforter, the other helper whom God has given is actively helping us when we don't know exactly how we should be praying in a multitude of situations. That Jesus is interceding for us from heaven and the Spirit is interceding for us from here. Now the one difficulty, or one of the difficulties, in saying that this is the Holy Spirit who is doing this interceding and is uh, doing so with groanings that cannot be expressed is the idea of the, the Spirit groaning. Of God groaning. Because we've just we've read earlier in the chapter here that that the creation groans and that we groan and I think the way that we just need to see that is that that groaning is a pretty broad word with with various meanings the groaning of the spirit is a groaning of intensity and of desire and of compassion when the spirit does it when we do it as Paul speaks of it, and as the creation does it earlier in the chapter, he's talking about the, the groaning that is out of a sense of lack and a sense of, of hope for something to come. So I don't think that's a problem in understanding this as being that the Spirit is the one who is interceding. He's the one that helps us by interceding uh, with these groanings, these wordless groanings that come about on our behalf by the Spirit to God the Father. That's verse 26. And that's such a great blessing for us as Christians to know that God is concerned that you get your prayers right, that He sends somebody to help to make the prayers right uh, when you don't know how to make the prayers right. When you pray for the wrong things, the Spirit, Paul says, helps or prays for the right things. And in verse 27, he gives us a little explanation of, as to how that is, of just how and how confident we can be regarding this intercession of the Holy Spirit. And it's a fact in this verse here that's, that sets us up for the, the magnificent topic that we're going to see next Sunday, Lord willing. 
very briefly here in verse 27. He says, And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And again, this follows right on from verse 26, part of the same thought. And what this verse is talking about is the agreement between the intercessor, the Holy Spirit, and the, the object of the intercession, uh, which is God the Father. And it assures us of the help that comes through the Spirit interceding for us. It's like, a, it's like an exclamation point of this. He says in verse 27 that he who searches hearts Stop there for just a second. That is clearly God the Father that he's speaking of there. Scripture speaks of God many times as he who searches hearts. Uh, just a couple of examples in Acts chapter 1. Remember the disciples are together and they are trying to replace Judas. And so they, they pray and they refer to God in prayer as you Lord who know the hearts of all. And, of course, God described himself back in the Old Testament to Samuel as the one who doesn't look at outward appearances, but he looks at the heart. He knows the heart. And we can mention many other examples or scriptures that tell us that. And so he who searches hearts is God the Father. And he, Paul writes, knows what is the mind of the Spirit. He's just saying there that the two are of, of one mind, what the Spirit knows, the Father knows. What the Father knows, the Spirit knows. God the Father is in perfect accord with the Holy Spirit. He knows the mind of the Spirit. And since the Spirit is interceding for Christians with a wordless intercession by knowing the Spirit's, by knowing the Spirit's mind, God the Father knows your needs. Because the Spirit knows your needs. God then knows them as the Spirit knows them. And He knows them better than you know them. He knows them more accurately than you know them. He knows what you need. He knows what you need to, to pray for. He knows what you need because the Spirit knows what you need. And you, Christian, saint, as you are regarded here in verse 27, you can be assured of the, the best, the most needful, the most necessary prayers to be prayed on your behalf because the Holy Spirit, who is God, Paul says, intercedes for you according to the will of God. That's at the end of the verse. It's at the end of the verse here, but in the, in the original it's given emphasis by the phrase being placed earlier in the sentence. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because according to the will of God, the Spirit intercedes for the saints is the way it reads in the original. And so because of that, you can be assured that the prayers that are being offered are the best prayers. They're the right prayers. This is something that you don't even know happens. You do now but maybe you didn't before, but you're not conscious of this happening because it's not you praying. It's the Spirit interceding for you. Just another example 
of how much God cares for you. And by the way, we know that for us, Christ said that when you pray according to the will of God, we know that we have the prayers that we ask. How much more when the Holy Spirit prays for what we need according to the will of God can we be assured that we will have what He asks? Now, see, as, as you, I don't want to give away the farm here, but as we sneak forward into verse 28, keeping all of those things we just saw in mind, how much more does it mean then when we read that, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good? Huh? That gives an extra depth to that. We'll explore that next week. But the intercessory work of the Holy Spirit, which is without doubt, and in direct and complete agreement with the will of God, verse 27 says, it is for every Christian, every one of us, Christian brother and sister, it is an indispensable help to each of us in our weakness when we just do not know what we should be praying for. Even when we think we know what we should be praying for. And so this joins with the other undeniable benefits of your justification. This joins with all of the the other undeniable aspects of the work of the Holy Spirit on your behalf, who dwells in you, who dwells in each of us by God's grace. It just shows all the more how wonderful it is that we have been brought near to God through Christ, our condemnation removed replaced by intercession from the Holy Spirit. And to that, let us say, amen. Let's pray. God and Father in heaven, we thank you for the Spirit. We thank you, uh, Lord, when we pray that you'd forgive us when we sort of downplay the work of the Spirit. Or when we don't think of Him. Or when we think of Him wrongly. Father, we know there's so much wrong, so many wrong ideas about the Spirit that sometimes we can become afraid of the Spirit, that we're going to get, get it wrong. But we thank you for your word that teaches us uh, the work of the Spirit as we've seen through this chapter. And we pray, Lord, that you would continue to, to cause us to, to praise and to worship the Holy Spirit just as we praise and worship the the Son, and just as we praise and worship you, O God the Father. We pray that you would bless us. We pray that you would improve our prayer, that, that we might pray more, that we might pray more in line with your will. But may we do so, Lord, knowing that in our weakness that you are there, and that you are not just there, but you are here, that you are in us by your Holy Spirit interceding for us, with words that cannot be expressed. And we thank you for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.